We could be in passion, we could be in danger, as we discuss Killer, the fourth studio album by the Alice Cooper Band. It was released on November 27, 1971 on Warner Brothers Records. The album was produced by Bob Ezrin and reached number 21 on the Billboard 200 album chart. On the other mic, he's got the answers to all of your questions. If you've got the money to pay him in gold, he's a musician, an old friend, and the biggest Alice Cooper fan I have ever met, Steve Pettit. Welcome back to the show, Steve. I'm calling in from old Monte Carlo. <laughs> Excellent. So you're in California. How's everything going? Uh, you know, I think it's going as pandemically well as it can, I guess, is, <laughs> would be the answer. <laughs> I'm pretty far ahead of schedule, so I'm hoping by the time this actually runs that we'll all be free, but uh, yeah, I'm not holding my breath. Well, you know, the, uh, the cannabis industry is working on uh, not a cure or vaccine, but it's they have been making breakthroughs with a CBD formula that slows down the drastic effects of the virus. We may see that before we see a vaccine. Here's wishing them all the luck in the world of getting that where it needs to be. How did this album enter your life? Quite early, actually. It, it was uh, the greatest Christmas that I ever had. <laughs> <laughs> so what happened was the first album i ever owned that was my album was welcome to my nightmare and i've just always said that i was three when it happened i could have been three or four because it could have been 75 could have been 76 you know i was getting 45s around that time that was the point where i became an alice cooper fan and my brother had the greatest hits so we knew the, all the songs from those two records christmas of 1979 was the one time that my parents indulged us, me, my brother, and my sister. My sister wasn't as much of a record collector as me and my brother, but, you know, she still played. She had her records, and she would just play them to death. Like, that was that was her <laughs> MO. In fact, for better or worse, I turned her on to Susie and the Banshees at one point. Peekaboo came out. I had the 12-inch, because I was just buying all the Susie and the Banshee stuff. She jacked my Peekaboo single, and it had this 10-minute version of the song, and she would crank the shit out of her stereo, so she would just, you could hear it through the whole house. I could just hear, and she would just play it over and over, and I was like, just keep the record. Keep it. I don't, I don't need it anymore. <laughs> So I don't remember the entirety of that big payload. I know that I got like eight records and then my brother got like, you know, eight or nine records too. And I think my sister got like two or three. So one of the records was Killer. Also, uh, one of the other records was Pink Floyd's The Wall. So I was the coolest kid that everybody knew at that point because everybody wanted to hear my Pink Floyd The Wall record. You got it? Let me borrow it. I want to make a tape. <laughs> That's how it came into my life. And I remember, you know, we all got to take turns with, you know, our big payload, Christmas payload, and listen to stuff on headphones. So Killer was the first thing that I chose to listen to on the headphones. And it was that thing where I knew the songs that were on Greatest Hits. So three of the four songs on side one, I knew. But when Halo of Flies came on, I was like, oh, what is this? One of Alice's weird, freaky. And I don't care what anyone else says. I mean, it's pretty much was me dipping my toe into prog rock because, you know, I hadn't started listening to any of the other elongated stuff. You know, Yes and all that stuff would come a couple years later. And even the, the more out there Pink Floyd stuff. I mean, The Wall was 
the one of the first things I heard by them. That's how it came in my life. And how about okay. you, Derek? I'm pretty sure I had this one on cassette in the uh, late 80s. So I remember going to one of those big box stores like, uh, that was close to me, like Walmart or Kmart or something. And they had those nice price cassettes at the time for like six bucks. Right. And so I was picking up stuff that bands I was listening to were either mentioning as an influence or were covering. So I remember getting, you know, like Aerosmith Rocks or Kiss Destroyer or Alice Cooper Killer. And I remember picking up Killer because of a specific cover that I think I invented in my head because I cannot find it. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Then later, this was actually the first record that I got actually on vinyl when I started collecting vinyl again in the uh, 2000s. So I was working at Vinyl Fever and somebody had brought in, you know, a stack of records to sell and for some reason they didn't actually they bought everything except for this one record and the guy just left it i had gotten a turntable as a part of a big unit from my sister you know it was one of those like the dual cassette cd player turntable stereo system and i didn't have anything to play on it and so i had uh, asked the one of the guys like hey do you mind if i take this home and he's like eh, you know yeah it's yeah, take it it's yours it's free and so i brought that home and and listened to it and then a couple of days later i ended up buying billion dollar babies because it was it came in it was really good shape and it still had the billion dollar bill and the cards and, and whatnot and so then that's when i really started buying vinyl and initially all i was buying was old heavy metal records mainly from the 80s but you know some stuff from you know a little bit older so i did get some alice cooper and some acdc and some led zeppelin and you know that kind of thing so let's go ahead and jump into the track by track we have side one song one under my wheels the telephone is ringing you got me on the run I heard this as a cover and I thought in my head, I have it that it was Guns N' Roses with Michael Monroe from Hanoi Rocks trading. Yeah. So Axl Rose and, and Michael Monroe trading verses. And I can't find it. I couldn't find it. I looked through Spotify, through YouTube, and I find Hanoi Rocks covering it. I find Guns N' Roses covering it on the, and I thought it was on the uh, Decline of Western Civilization too. But that's Alice Cooper singing with Guns N' Roses. So, Steve, tell me, did I invent this cover in my head? Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know if uh, I know of one that specifically has Guns N' Roses with, like, Michael Monroe or anything. I just know the Guns N' Roses one, and I think that's from uh, Western Civilization. Yeah, it's with Alice Cooper. So I don't know if I just, I'm remembering a different song, <laughs> or if I'm hallucinating, or I don't know. Timelines have changed somewhere along the way, and, and the old one that I no longer live in is where that cover exists. <laughs> but anyway, this is such a fantastic opener. This just sets it right off. I love that opening guitar line. It almost sounds like a car squealing on pavement, just going. It's such a fantastic song. And the, that main riff that goes throughout this comes really close to being like Southern rock. It doesn't quite get there all the way. It's missing just a little bit of, you know, maybe a little more bluesiness to it or something. You know, horns come in later on and this is just such a perfect rock and roll song right at the top of the record. I mean, I think this does a great job of introducing. One of the things about this record is that it's pretty varied. It doesn't have a, I think, a standard sound to it. Like uh, some of the other stuff you hear, you know, has maybe something. I think every every song does its own thing while still all hanging together. Uh, yeah. But I, I love how this one starts. What do you think about this one? You know, it's a classic. It's I. It's 
one of those things that you know it's it's like a secondary nature thing to me it's like breathing because i've just i've heard it so many times you know since probably since i was three or four funny thing though a little little callback to uh, one of our earlier shows another cover that was done of this song was the manic street preachers actually covered this really yeah, it was on a early EP. I have it in my iTunes, but I can't remember where. I, I want to say it's from the first album when they did Generation Terrorists. There was an EP and that has a few covers on it and Under My Wheels is on it. So the Richie lineup of the band did a cover of this song. I didn't uh, see that came up when I when I was looking for covers because I know that Joe Elliott cover. You know, there's a plenty of covers out there and I didn't see that one. So that's cool. I would have I listened to that. I know. Yeah. I have to check that out. It's a good rouser. Um, I think if you either see Alice live or watch a live broadcast chances are pretty good you're going to get this song in the set because i think that's that's one of his staples it's like you know bowie and rebel rebel it's like just one of those gets people going it's it's a good rock and just old-fashioned rock and roll tune it's got the boogie the boogie going rock and roll boogie going on and great misogynistic lyrics about running over your old lady you know (laughs) (laughs) it was the 70s so we could do that then we could run over 14-year-olds we were dating and nobody would say anything about it. So I do want to clear this up. Alice actually never did anything of that sort. He was actually, like, because he was such a good, well-brought-up Catholic or Protestant boy or whatever, the worst he ever did was just a mess of, like, drinking and drugs that, you know, messed him up. He did, he was always righteous to other people. <laughs> That's yeah. something I think I- that you can find in not only in his accounting, if you read Golf Monster, his autobiography, but just anybody else's account of dealing with Alice Cooper is that he's he's a mensch. He's a solid dude. Yeah, and I didn't even know he had issues with drugs. I thought it was just mainly alcohol. I remember seeing an interview, like he would fall asleep with a can of beer next to his bed. So when he would wake up, he could immediately start drinking. Yeah, uh, and uh, at the peak of his alcoholism, according to him, he was doing, he was a daily, a fifth and an 18 pack. Okay. And I've never even heard that he was a, a bad drunk. Like, you know, you hear stories about, you know, Johnny Cash back in the day or something right. or any of those guys where it just seemed like that alcoholism just nearly killed him. And I don't yeah. know that how much it affected his behavior towards other people. Like you're mentioning, like most people have good things to say. And I just don't know if it was just that it was wreaking havoc on his body because he was drinking so much. I never hear any yeah. bad stories about him trashing hotel rooms or no, smacking, not at all. smacking somebody around or, you know, that kind of thing. It was just. No, not at all. In fact, if you do read Golf Monster, which I highly recommend. It's actually, it's a quite a breezy read and it's not that long. I think it's like maybe 200 pages, 250 or something like that. But he's a functional drunk and he did it to occupy himself. That's actually why golf takes such a precedent later in his life is because he found that easier to plug into because you know like whenever they roll into town they'd be waiting for showtime waiting for setup and all that and he would be drinking to occupy his time once he took up golfing he was like hey let me find a golf course i'm gonna work on my game and then he just plugged into like being obsessive about his golf game and that's how he helped stay sober uh, doesn't his wife joke that he just traded one addiction for another but that yep. she much preferred she much preferred the golf addiction <laughs> yeah something like that pretty much all right so let's go ahead and move on to track two be my lover we have a drink or two well maybe
What do you think about this one? Another classic, just a stone classic. A great Alice Cooper kind of like power pop ballad type rocker. Big radio play in, in at the time. You know, it's on Alice Cooper's greatest hits, which, you know, I know people like to poo-poo on greatest hits all the time. But, you know, a well put together one is totally valuable. And I think that the Alice Cooper greatest hits of the original band, like that's actually one of the great ones. I put that like right up there with like Sly and the Family Stone's greatest hits. Yeah, that's a it's a great package, and I just remember being younger. I was upset that uh, Welcome to My Nightmare wasn't on it, not you know, because obviously that would came later, you know, and that was more solo stuff. But when I was when I was first buying, it was like it always seemed annoying that I couldn't get 18 and Welcome to My Nightmare on the same record. So which I'm sure later you could, but now at that point, but yeah, that original one is is really good. And yeah, this like you said, this is a I like this is a, a story song, and he's telling a straight story. I think it was written by the uh, guitar player. I think this is more or less a Rhythm. true story. Let's say yeah, rhythm guitar. Michael Bruce, yeah. Okay, yeah, rhythm guitar. So, and it's a, you know, basically just him meeting a woman and and hitting it off, and it's it's a story song, and because it feels like you said like a, more of like a straight up rock tempo, because this is when they were still more in like the hard rock glam stuff, and this just feels like a, a regular rock and roll song. And if it wasn't for the fact that it was such a specific story that even mentions Alice Cooper, that this could be like yeah, Cat Stevens could do this, or Johnny Cash could do this, or any of those people who like the singer songwriters who told stories. Yeah, uh, I felt like. It, they in theory do the song but couldn't because because <laughs> it's so specific to that band i love this song and it's, it's super catchy and it shows just a different facet of what they were able to do and i think you see that a lot on this record that the, with these eight tracks they do something pretty different on all eight of them it really feels like a band who felt like they were in total control of their power yeah i think bob ezrin is pretty well known for being able to tighten a band down and you know and the alice cooper group was early personal project for him because that's how he got his shot he, he was known as toronto bob in the early days and then he was the one who he discovered them in a club you know i think it might have been the whiskey and he calls up jack richardson and he's like you gotta come see this band they've got this great song call them edgy <laughs> I, I couldn't remember if it was Bob Ezrin that said that because he was like, I'm edgy. I like that. And then that's 18 for those who don't know the story. Richardson came and, and saw him and was like, eh, why don't you produce these guys? That's basically like he didn't want to do it. That's how Ezrin got his shot. And then that's kind of why he's been so loyal to Alice. That's the other thing I think that speaks volumes about Alice is like the people who are major players in his life are people who are loyal throughout the years. Bob Ezrin is one of those people, uh, Shep Gordon, who was his manager from the get-go, you know, from the early days of the band, still his manager. In fact, he's retired all other acts, but he still manages Alice. <laughs> I didn't realize that. Yeah, yeah, he's pretty much just like lives in his, like his Hawaiian mansion and, you know, have people just drop by whenever they feel like it and he cooks for them or whatever. But Alice is the one person he still manages his career because, you know, they've just been together for so long. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to track three, Halo of Flies. I've got the answers to all of your questions. I 
love this just that creepy guitar that opens and this song is all is very dramatic it's got a i hate to say it killer bass line uh and then this is the first time i really noticed there's keys because i know there's some keyboards throughout and maybe some in the first two songs but I, you don't really hear them uh this is the first place you really notice it and it has that section because this is a pretty long song it hits that point where like the rhythm just starts to do that gallop and something that like iron maiden would make an entire career out of about a decade later uh, but just the way that the the bass and the drums are locked in and just the, the way the rhythm is going. And they don't stay with it for the whole song. It closes out with a four-minute long instrumental jam, yeah. which normally I'm not a big fan of that kind of thing. But this never feels indulgent. And it just feels like the band's like, all right, you guys think we can't play. Watch us fucking play, you know? Yeah. And it's great. And it breezes by. When I saw that it's nearly four minutes long, it's what, three minutes and 50 seconds or something mm-hmm. uh, to close out. I was surprised it was that long because it, it just breezes by. They really take you on a trip with this song. This is one of those, like, they use those eight minutes very well in terms of it's not like nobody's ever wanking or just trying to show off. They truly are, like, all locked in and, and playing and, and taking you on a trip. That's what it felt like to me, you know, that first time. The first time I heard this record was on headphones. And I didn't know this song. I mean, I just saw that there was this eight-minute song coming up after the first two songs I knew. And then when I heard it, I, you know, I was like, I went to my brother. I was like, dude, you got to hear this song. <laughs> <laughs> and to this day is, uh, you know, top five Alice track for both of us. I can see why. And it's a fun because it's basically like a, a spy story. Um, if you if you need any kind of story behind it, and then just you know just taking you out on that that super long instrumental thing, and because uh, I I just think as as a rock band those guys were fucking great. I just mm-hmm. I, you know you know nobody was super flashy like you said, and mm-hmm. one of the things really kind of listening closely is just how good the bass work is on this album. Yeah, Dennis and, Dunaway is a monster. He's he really would lay down some awesome parts. Dennis Dunaway and Neil Smith, who's the drummer. I mean, they're just. They're an awesome rhythm section. They Agreed, yeah. Really know how to like serve the song in every instance. That's I think they're part of what makes that original group so legendary and so great. And the guitar players, he said that never they were never about, hey, look at me, look at all these things that I can do. And it was more like let's just write some fucking great songs, you know? And yeah. That's how it always felt like that band just, cause they were what high school buddies that started out as like a Beatles cover band or something and moved on from there. And you can just, they're just really like, you know, in and out of what they're doing, just all locked in. And, you know, I just, I love this part and I love this song and you gotta love any song that actually a band takes their name from. I don't think I've ever heard anything by the band Halo of Flies, but you know, if you write a song good enough that somebody wants to name their band after it, I think that's pretty cool, you know? Yeah, agreed. And Glenn Buxton in, in his own right was a riff master. I mean, he just, he knew how to come up with those hooks. That's why the Alice Cooper group was so successful with the radio because, you know, you hear the opening chime of schools out, for instance, it's like, you know, what song's coming on. It's like, there's, yeah. there's that riff doesn't happen in anything else. So yeah. He was, he was good at just making very distinctive riffs. Yeah. And I, I love the riff for a billion dollar babies. Mm-hmm. It's just, that's one of my all time favorites. And just the, just the guitar in that is so, it's a monster song. One of the other things about Halo Flies, uh, I think this is the first instance that we get a glimpse of Alice's James Bond fixation. And yeah. That's why, <laughs> that's why I think you have that spy element. I think it's them, you know, like a little bit of that, like James Bond theme in there, like at least the feel of it. They're, they're not copying the hook 
you know, note for note, but they were definitely going for the feel of that. They were going for that kind of feel with part of this song for sure. Oh yeah, definitely. It's a great song. Eight, you know, even at eight minutes, you know, I'm usually like a less is more, but more is more in this. More is more on this song. So we'll go ahead and. Uh, I suppose you would make a radio edit of Sister Ray, huh? I already have, Steve. <laughs> Two and a half minutes. That's it. And you're done, kid. You're done. It's fifteen minutes going nowhere. <laughs> I know you're on drugs. I don't need to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Number one with a bullet. All right. So let's go on to track four, Desperado. Step into the street by sundown. Step into your last goodbye. You're a target just by living. $20 will What do you got for me, Steve? This has always been a, a song that I've loved. You know, I, I knew it from the Alice Cooper's Greatest Hits first. Just always struck me as, like, that's a song you hear. If you hear this song and you don't understand how cool Alice Cooper is, then that really sounds like a you problem. <laughs> because, I mean, you know, part of it is, yeah, he's, this is Alice, like, kind of doing his uh, Jim Morrison bit because they were friends. And if you read Dennis Dunaway's book or you read Alice's book, you just see, like, how many legendary people they knew. And not only that in the scene at the time, you know, he knew Hendrix and Zappa and the Doors and Janice and, like, all those, the Isley brothers, the Chambers brothers, whatever. But that Alice, because of his Hollywood fixation, like, he was the guy who, like, started to pay homage to, like, all the stars of yesteryear. Like, he was going and he was hanging out with Groucho Marx and Mae West. Mae West actually tried to get him to sleep with her. (laughs) (laughs) There's a funny thing, too. uh, um, Raquel Welch was really into Alice. She was super, like, wanted, wanted Alice. And he had just started dating Cheryl and like and knew like she was the one and that was also around the time he had started playing golf and you know and all the golf people at these fancy clubs are like "Ah, this long-haired rocker poser whatever and because Raquel Welch was like so hounding him so hard she actually came to the golf course because he had like turned her away like she wanted to like bed him the night before or whatever so she came out to the golf course and she was like furious and so like all these you know like guys all these golfers with you know older or whatever they see Raquel Welch and they're like how is this guy getting this chick she's like the hottest chick in the world and like and then they all respected her after that because of it (laughs) I had not heard that story that's fantastic that's like golf monster I mean it's it's an interesting book for sure it's totally worth reading all right. Well, I'm going to have to check that out to find it, see if I can find it over here somehow. And yeah, so obviously Desperado, it, you know, comes across as something from the Old West. And yeah. you can almost see this being like in the TV show, even though the, the music doesn't sound Old Western. You know, he doesn't really try to ape any kind of era with that. It's still a, kind of a cool rock song. And sure. I had always thought he had based this on 
a guy from like a, a television actor with that son, you know, the lace and leather, but everything I've seen, it's obviously about Jim Morrison. What I thought was kind of interesting is how he sings a lot of this song. He sings in a slightly lower register than he normally does. Now he yeah. does hit his Alice, you know, kind of that screech that he does a little bit later, yeah. but on some of the verses he's singing in a, and I don't know if he's really trying to do a, a Jim Morrison voice without trying to ape his, you know, he doesn't, doesn't sound like he's trying to sound like Jim Morrison. Whereas he's more singing in that tone. Yeah, I think he's just going for the more subdued, like talky Morrison kind of tone without trying to be overt about it. That's the thing I, I notice about any of uh, any of the things about Alice is that if he's playing off of something and, and he truly is like a movie nerd, TV nerd, music nerd, and he knows all of that stuff really well. He doesn't ever try to wear those influences on his sleeve. He's that's one of his gifts and one of his talents, I think, is that he's always been able to just make it his own kind of thing. Sure. You know, he was known for, like you said, hanging out with Groucho Marx and all these other things, but it never comes across as desperate. It's never like that, oh, I, I wanna I wanna hang out with the Hollywood guys and so I'm gonna do this or that. It's just more like there was a certain reverence there, but also just like you said, he's such a cool guy. I think this is also pre uh, shameless self promotion era of everything you know (laughs) you know there were people who were you know like climbing the ladder because that was around since the you know 60s 50s 40s whatever i think that was why he had such an in with all those people is because they could tell he was coming from a a place of respect and reverence also that he was just such an easygoing guy about things that they were willing to hang out with him and there's some really good stories uh, some really eye-opening stories in alice's book even stuff that i didn't know because i think he probably was saving it for an autobiography uh he's truly somebody who has a a gifted amount of stories like i never knew he was close friends with peter sellers like they were they were like almost best friends up until the time of seller's death. And, oh, wow. Okay. And they used to play a little game where if they were going to meet up, they had uh, aliases that they would check in their hotel and they would leave notes for one another. And one of those was uh, Alice's alias was Maurice Escargot, which is the name he uses on Lace and Whiskey right around that period. Now, I have nothing but mad respect for him, but you already knew that. <laughs> yeah, of course. And this song has one of my favorite lines where he's like, uh, you're a notch and I'm a legend. I love that line. And the cello that comes in, I think there's a cello that, that plays in the second half of the song. And yeah. there's a lot of cool stuff. A fantastic way to finish the first side because you're almost surprised at four minute long uh, instrumental jam is what would finish a side. But then, no, he, he throws in this other song. And I think that and that really, really works instead of yeah. taking it out on that musical side. And he puts in just this other little song, an homage to a friend, without being corny about it. It's great. Yeah, one of my favorite Alice lines is actually in that song as well. That's the tell me where the hell I'm going. Let my bones fall in the dust. Can you hear yeah. that ghost that's calling as my coat begins to rust in the dust? Just that approach, I think, is uh, is pretty cool. One thing I do want to throw in, uh, in case there are any of your listeners who don't know this, Alice's lyrics have been praised by no less than John Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten, and Bob Dylan. <laughs> and I know, uh, I think uh, Johnny Rotten says that this is the greatest rock and roll record of all time. Yep. And I think a, a few other people have, uh, have also said good things. There's a, a lot of reverence from a lot of the peers. That brings us to the end of Side One of Killer by Alice Cooper on I Fucking Love This Record with my special guest, Steve Pettit. Now, I know you are, like I said at the intro, maybe without a doubt the biggest Alice Cooper fan that I know you mentioned that uh, you had the you got the greatest hits when you were still in the womb if I understand correctly (laughs) 
Uh, well, actually, my brother was the one who got the greatest hits as a Christmas gift. He actually got the Alice Cooper's greatest hits and America's greatest hits, like as as a Christmas gift. But I think that I already had Welcome to My Nightmare, and I got that. I was either three or four. My brother bought that for me, but it it was one of those things where my mom was going to Kmart. I don't know why I would have been making allowance at age three, but apparently I was. And my brother wanted this record, so he is like give me your allowance money and I'll get you something special because he wanted something else. So so he buys me Alice Cooper's Welcome to My Nightmare and then the love of Alice Cooper was born for me. And of course, right around that same time, there was the TV special that probably aired in prime time, but I didn't catch it until it was a rerun. I remember seeing it with my brother late one night, you know, probably like after like 11 or 12 on the weekends we would just stay up and watch tv all night they re-ran the nightmare i have a burned dvd of that somewhere i duped it from a vhs tape a while ago because that's he's never made that available again for whatever reason which is a shame i mean it's camp campy as hell but you know it's got vincent price and all the staging and sets and stuff of that album that's a fun one i lived in new york in what the year two 2002 2003 i can't quite remember they had opened up the museum of television history or something like that. And so I went. And so you could check out television shows basically and go watch them at a PlayStation. And so the thing that I had chosen to watch was Alice Cooper on the Muppet show. I remember seeing that as a kid, of course, and then just to watch it as an adult, that was a lot of fun. In some ways, Alice Cooper, especially in that era, was a little bit like Kiss, where I think a lot of times kids were enjoying more of the image, mm-hmm. if not necessarily the music. You know, my mom was more of like an AM radio kind of gal and didn't really let me listen to some of this stuff at the time. So unlike you, got to listen to it when you were a little kid. <laughs> uh, it wasn't until I was a teenager, really, that I got to get into it. One of the things I'd also like to bring up is that, you know, we've talked a lot about this personally, and that you're a pretty big fan of his solo career, let's say post Welcome to My Nightmare and pre him reinventing himself once again as the heavy metal guy that he's more or less carried on into the future. So what is it about that particular era that uh, appeals to you so much? 86 is when he comes back reinvented heavy metal wise. So uh, 83 is Dada. 83 to 86 is retirement period. And D. Snyder actually talked him out of retirement. So it's basically 75 to 83 is the original solo era before okay. he comes back as reinvented as the heavy metal meister. And I just think he had ambitions that went along with his taste. Uh, you know, I, I think if you look at the accounts of the kind of music listener that Vincent Fernier is, that he's kind of like you or me. And he's somebody who he listens to all kinds of music and loves it all. New wave and probably old classic country and whatever. So I think he felt a little stifled by that original group and wanted to be a little bit more ambitious and i think that uh welcome to my nightmare is a very ambitious album i never really thought of that previously because it was just something i knew since i was a kid mm-hmm. but i i got the japanese pressing of it which is a slightly different mix and that it really accentuates different things because uh, the title track the guitars are a little bit down in the mix like on all the other mixes like the american mix or whatever the guitars are like up there in your face so with the mix slightly down in the mix you can hear that song as more of like a almost like a hardcore funk jam because the rhythm section is so prominent yeah. And I was just like, God, I never noticed like what a funk jam this song was. <laughs> 
and you know, and then he's doing like show tuny type stuff, like uh, some folks, and, and of course he does that uh, through the next few records. Alice Cooper goes to hell, even uh, you know, Lace and Whiskey. You know, from the inside, it's a different story. But I think that those records all have really interesting stuff. Probably up through from the inside, the uh, from the start of his career, like the least interesting record to me is Muscle of Love. And that's still a great record that has a couple of really awesome songs on it. It's not the strongest. You, you can tell that like the Alice Cooper group is definitely they're just burnt out because like what all of those bands in that era would do was like, it was just nonstop. It was like album tour studio, you know, and and nobody was ever taking a break. And that's why all these guys got burnt out or that's why they were always partying hard just to like get through their grueling schedules that they were doing. They were, they were basically like burning the candle at both ends. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously killer was the second album that they released in 1971. So right. yeah, they, another album came out in, uh, in what, February of 71. This came out in November of 71. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, you see some of those and, you know, whether it's the, you know, obviously a lot with the rock guys, but you know, same thing with like Elton John put out what, like three records in 1971 or something ridiculous <laughs> and maybe not in 71, but yeah, there was time, you know, Kiss was putting out two records in a year and I think tours were probably a little more truncated at that point. You know, I don't think people were, weren't going abroad quite as much, maybe. I don't know. Uh, you know, if you're, I don't. Yeah. I don't know how you record an album, two albums in a year, and tour behind them both. It seems just. I don't. You know, how do I how do you do that? <laughs> right. The, and the touring schedules probably were different in the regards that there were probably only like the bigger cities of every state, not like little podunk stops that you know. Hey, we've got an amphitheater now. Come see us. You know. <laughs> yeah. Let's go ahead and flip the record over. Side two, track five. You drive me nervous. This is just straight up 1970s hard rock at its finest. I think mm-hmm. this is a, I think it's a great song. My only thing with this song is that really I feel like all, a lot of different bands could have recorded this song. I think with the other like everything on side one was definitely Alice Cooper. And this one, you know, I could hear Kiss doing a version of this song. I could hear Golden Earring doing a version of this song. Uh, I think a lot of the the hard rock bands from the 70s that, I mean, it still has that Cooper stamp to it and his personality really drives a lot of what's going on. Uh, this one, and I don't want to say generic because it's, it's, and it's a great song. It's a great way to lead off side two. We get two different driving songs <laughs> to uh, lead off both sides. I just feel like almost any hard rock band from the 70s could have done a good version of this song, which I think also is a testament to how strong this song really is in, you know, from a songwriting perspective. Right. My retort to that is, but they didn't. But they didn't. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've never one that's like, oh, that guitar part sounds easy to play. I don't give a shit if it's easy, if it's memorable, you know, you know, bring it on. There's a line here where yeah, he's talking about, you know, you can't get, you know, couldn't get out of jail and it's, your parents have to come bail him out. And there's the line, somebody says, you know, honey, where did we fail? And to me, that sounds like Rodney Dangerfield. I don't think it is because I haven't been able to find anything. And if that was him, I'm sure there would be some kind of mention of it. I believe that's Alice. Is it really? 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I think it, that's just him doing like a character voice because he does a similar one in the song Go to Hell. Okay. He's doing all those vocals in Go to Hell. That's a chorus of Alice Cooper's. Really? So, okay. Yeah. What do you think about this song? I like the song. It's a good rocker. It's I can agree with the things that you're saying. Like I think this album is because it's, you know, it's eight tracks, it's thir- 37 minutes. There's really no fat on it. This is the closest that the this or the next song is the closest that you would get to filler, but I still really like both of those songs. And this one's just it's kind of a kind of a fierce rocker. It's got a little bit of an attitude with it. A funny story is that I used to go to this cafe in Long Beach called Harbor House, and they'd have you know Sirius XM some pl- station playing, and I was sitting there. It was early morning, you know, we small hours like two, three in the morning, and this song came on their system, and I just sat there and I was like, you know, if I were 15 and you would have told me, you know, you're going to be in your 40s sitting in a cafe and you're going to hear this song, like, I would have laughed in your face. Because it just seemed like such a weird, like, out of the Alice Cooper songs, like, why would you be playing that one? It seems like such an odd. So that was kind of a surreal moment for me to hear that, Mm. not in the context of an album just playing as a lone track from, you know, Sirius XM or whatever. But, you know, good on him. All I can say is he got good taste. Sure. (laughs) So let's go ahead and move on to track six. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can be my slave and I'll be a stranger. What do you think here again a pretty solid just straightforward rock and roll song i feel like this is it's almost like a hybrid of under my wheels be my lover like if you kind of mesh those two together you would get the feel of this song that's what that the song kind of feels to me it almost seems like an afterthought kind of song but serves the purpose of the album because i think in between that whole first side which you know is just awesome start to finish these two songs, like, they rock and they get you bobbing your head, but it gives you the little downtime to set up for what's coming next, where, you know, the big one-two finish. I can see that. I'm a big fan of being able to put together an album and to have something in in the track listing where... You you're giving your listener what I would call breathing room, where it's, you're just kind of allowing them to like chill out and then you're going to hit them again. And that's what I think both of these songs do. And I like the sequencing of it, whereas I think if you tried to put Yeah, Yeah, Yeah in a different spot on this album, it probably wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. This is a good two song two song if that makes any sense well i think it's going to exactly what you're saying that it gives you just that moment of it's still a great tune but it's not one that's going to demand your attention and for me this is more of a this is kind of like a garage rocker which i feel if they would have done this pre bob ezrin would have been a lot more raw that I, I think that this is when you can you can feel those garage elements of like the earlier stuff that they were doing and i often wondered if this is kind of a beatles reference with the yeah 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 because he was obviously a huge beatles fan and they did a talent show called and they were the earwings yeah and i was wondering if this is a beatles reference because in it ends you know there's a harmonica at the end of it I, I wasn't able to find any reference of him saying that that's one of those things that's always been in my my mind about this song a little bit of a beatles thing to it yeah like a little nod to she loves you yeah for sure i can see that so track seven dead babies she did 
this is one where you know maybe courting a, a little bit of controversy, and I think just from the title, <laughs> this is another one. I think they were a bit misunderstood band at times, where obviously nature and the way they dressed, this could be taken, you know, like you know you have uh, babies, I love the dead, or you know where that's just pure chakra. But if you listen to this one, I mean, this is I think it's really trying to. It's like anti parental abuse and probably a little bit about anti drug or you know pay attention to your fucking kids is what this song is all about you know and it has some of that 70s malaise to it where you got mommy's doing whatever daddy's doing something else and the kid ends up you know overdosing on aspirin or something that he got his hands on and uh and that's why she's dead and then nobody really seems to care because eh, you know we weren't that interested in being parents to begin yeah it's a creepy song and you know it's got some some cool like uh sound effects going on with the baby crying and a few other things and while still it never comes across as being like preachy or kind of cheese ball either. And I think this song is, is really effective. I think it really works. And it's one that's easy to misinterpret. Yeah, kind of like the Iron Maiden with their song, The Number of the Beast. You know, that's a easily misunderstood song. Yeah. Uh, because you're just looking at the title of the song. And it's like, well, no, pay attention to the lyrics. I do have a memory, not a very elaborate one, but I just remember I was playing the Killer album and, you know, I just had it on regular volume. I wasn't like cranking it. But this song comes on, and I can hear my mom in the other room. She's like, oh, I don't like this song. <laughs> I was like, well, you got to listen to the lyrics, isn't it? It's, you know, he's singing about ir- irresponsible parenting, not, you know, not about dead babies because he's just being like a weirdo. Yeah. It's not an excuse just to chop up baby dolls on stage. Yeah. So that brings us to the final track, the title track, Killer. did I do to deserve such a fate? I didn't really want to get involved in this thing. Someone handed me this gun and I, I gave it everything. Yeah, I gave it everything. What do you think about this one? Awesome. Awesome finish. You know, great final punch after Dead Babies. It's odd because you think about those two songs and, you know, wonder why they segued it together. Because, like, what's going on? Like, why is there this court thing going on? <laughs> why does it bleed? In? There's so many questions that le- are have been left unanswered <laughs> over the years. About, like, what exactly is going on with these two songs? But I guess the, the court case is, you know, the guy who the guy who is the killer. Very brief lyrically, it's basically just one verse i think it's two verses and then the first verse is repeated it's actually lyrically pretty short there's no refrain there's no chorus to it it's just another chance for the band to like shine musically and melodically and then the piste resistance is that the alice cooper group uh opens a can of bees in your ear at the end (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i love this song it just it's slinky and that doesn't really happen often with them and this is almost almost like a sexy song uh, and just t- the guitar tone on this one is so good. And like I said, it's not much to talk about lyrically, but just musically, it's top notch. It's such a great way to, to end the album because then all of a sudden, bees! <laughs> 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 because why the fuck not? You know, that's just, uh, 
It makes perfect, perfect sense. Yeah. And what are your final thoughts about this record? My final thoughts about this record is if you don't know it and you haven't heard it, you haven't given it a chance, you really need to. If you're someone who, you know, you like rock and roll, classic rock and roll, classic heavy music, you owe it to yourself to own this and love it to death as far as i'm concerned you can throw a billion dollar babies and schools out in there but for me it's love it to death and killer are like the big two with the original group they almost stand as a piece for me i think that's justified in the fact that they often were paired together i know like over in the uk i think they did i know they did one called early days where they put the first two records together but i think there was another package where they did Love It to Death and Killer together. And they also did that over here with the cassettes, you know, when Warner would take their like super savers and they'd put two of them on a cassette, mm-hmm. you know, because neither one of these albums are very long. They're both under 40 minutes, you know, like just yeah. about 35 minutes. And to me, they are, they're of a piece. I feel like they go together. I often end up listening to them together. They're both like ingrained in my DNA. I know every note of these records there's not really any mystery left for me with these records other than what the fuck is going on in those last two songs like why is that all happening (laughs) i'm not even sure anybody from the original alice cooper group could answer those questions at this point one thing i do want to i do want to mention as a point of interest was when i read golf monster it was just a couple months months ago because i was reading it during the pandemic here my brother had it while i was still up there so i didn't read it front to back i actually started a little bit midway through the book because i was i just started leafing through it but then i got caught up in it and read it so then i just read it all the way through and then started at the beginning and then read up to where <laughs> i had started and it turns out that where i ended up the end of the book was at the end of the killer tour and he talks about how they played sao paulo brazil for the first time and i think that they were the one of the first bands that they had let in like big rock and roll bands but it was a very controversial thing because the people of brazil thought that the alice cooper group was involved in macumba which is a religion there that's kind of along the lines of Santeria. They thought like all this, all the stuff in their makeup and their sets and usage of snakes and all that stuff was all part of like the Macumba religion. So it was very controversial. And there's, I think that they're, that particular concert also still to this day holds the indoor record for attendance at a concert, which is 158,000 people. Jeez. <laughs> so, I mean, for 71 or 72, like, that's pretty impressive. And the fact that it's still to this day is an indoor record, you know. That's a crazy amount of people. When it comes with uh, the original Alice Cooper band, my go-to was always, I would always say Billion Dollar Babies was my favorite. This was probably my second. And listening to this one a lot recently, just to prepare for the show. And so I had this out on, on vinyl. And so I'm like, ah, okay, I'll grab Billion Dollar Babies. And I like this record better. Just, <laughs> I don't know what it is. I listen yes! to it. I like this record better. There's no fat on this record. There's no hide on this record. There isn't, like I said, the closest... Like, yeah, 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 maybe like if you had to skip a song because you were being held at gunpoint, I guess that one. Eight minutes instead of 36, you know, <laughs> okay. Oh, like, okay, fine, if I have to. But, you know, there's just, there's nothing, there's not a dog in the bunch. This is just a front to back, stone cold classic. And it's almost a shame that it's not remembered that way. I think, you know, people who like Al Cooper and stuff, this is obviously very highly regarded, but you don't hear this with, you know, even if you're talking about like, I don't know, Destroyer by Kiss or, you know, like, like mm. a classic. 70s hard rock album this one isn't one that i think comes up very often and i don't understand why because there's just 
nothing wrong with this record at all. Well, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of baggage that comes with the notion of Alice Cooper for whatever reason, and you're probably not going to see a turnabout or a reverence and acceptance in like how awesome of an artist he really was until probably after he's gone this is something a a conversation that i've had with my brother and a few other people where you know he just doesn't get the respect that he deserves i don't think people can can look subjectively at his career and go like wow this is a really remarkable artist and the fact of the matter is even if he's made you know a few dogs in in his career you know and, and maybe isn't as consistent once you get to the latter era although i think there is a consistency once he came did like i i think the third wave of alice cooper stuff i think probably the demarcation for me would be like eyes of alice cooper i can't remember if there was anything in between last temptation and eyes of alice cooper but from eyes of alice cooper he's been fairly consistent and he's Alice like I don't love those records quite I'll never love anything as much as like the that <laughs> original run you know that sure. goes and even you know even a couple of those 80s records are you know they're kind of goofy or whatever where he's like all drunk and out of control and writing songs about E.T. and stuff like that <laughs> 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 but he's never being less than entertaining. I hope that Alice gets his due. I hope that one day he gets his due. I hope he's still alive when it happens. That's just one of those things. Like Alice Cooper and Blue Oyster Cult are probably the most underrated of, you know, the the early hard rock category people like in terms of like their achievements that they did musically. Like you said he's he's put together a really long career and you just you can't be around that long and not have a few duds along the way. It's just that's just how it how it goes. Yeah, you're and not going to knock everything out of the park. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> yeah. And you have that original era like the band which is just it's fantastic I, I don't know like you said what muscle of love is probably the closest to a not a great record uh from that original run and and then it, because they they were reissued on on the different colored vinyl I've, I've listened to a couple of the solo career we were talking about so and i knew welcome to my nightmare and i've really fallen in love with whiskey and lace lace and whiskey which one is it yeah, i, I love it so much i can't i can't fucking remember the name of it <laughs> Uh, and goes to hell is is also great. Listen through the only one I haven't really been able to get into was um, for Catch's Skin. I even oh. like Dada better than that. I think is uh, I, well because Dada is just a weird, it's just a weird record. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, it's, and somehow it's the most unlike Alice out of all of his records. Um, and Super Catch's Skin is the is the closest to like a throwaway. I was never crazy about Special Forces, um, but once they put out those colored remasters, like when they remastered it, it's it's like somebody really did do the mix right. And I was like, oh, this is actually a really good record where it just always seemed a little lackluster to me. So I haven't really listened to Special Forces yet. So there's a couple that I haven't gotten to yet because I'm waiting to see if I'm going to pick them up or not. Just those, you know, the handful, the three right after Welcome to My Nightmare, the ones that I've been listening to. And, and like I said, then he caught the wave of that, you know, I'd say hair metal, even though he did that just a little bit you know so we went starting with what constrictor was it that he yeah. kind of came back as uh, yep. as, the, as the metal guy and then with conan the guitarist yeah. <laughs> <Kane> Roberts. 
Ken Roberts, yeah. And Kip Winger was in his band. That's right. There was, because I want to say, because I had the last temptation on CD for a while because I was working. And I had the, I still have that comic book somewhere, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't remember much about it. I don't remember it being bad. I just don't remember it being particularly good. And that's one I'd like to, that's one I will also revisit to see if, uh, if there's anything from there. And doesn't he do a couple of like new metal records before he gets the eyes of Alice Cooper? Was it like Dragon Town or something? Or did that come out later? That's later. That's after. And Dragon Town. I think Dragon Town is probably the best of his latter era records. I, oh, really? It's, I think that's the most, the closest to a classic Alice Cooper album in the latter era. It's okay, because I remember, I remember really liking Eyes of Alice Cooper. It's not one that stuck with me a long time because I think that was right before I moved to Poland. It came out and it was sort of like kind of a, you know, a little bit more garagey than what he had been doing as opposed to yeah. like metal. Yeah, I think and- Dragon is that too uh brutal planet came before and that's the one that's the new metally okay got this those two confused and i didn't really care for the welcome to my nightmare 2 or whatever it was called for me but then there was another one that had because that and it had a couple like of songs the, with... you didn't like the kesha guest star in... <laughs> <laughs> and then he put out another one that had a couple like the original band or everybody that's still alive anyway and so i was live, expecting live from the astroturf it was a studio record there was one with the studio record with in the I last think only paranormal but it's there's only one or two songs that has the right it's not it's not with the entire album the no 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 that's what i'm saying there was like just two songs that had it so paranormal which i thought was the i i was really expecting that to sound more like 70s alice cooper just because the original band but that was like pure 80s metal but it still really worked for me. It's not when I have revisited since then, but I mm-hmm. thought it was good. It was good. Not overwhelming, but it was, I thought it was a good record. I think his two heaviest records are probably Brutal Planet and then Along Came Spider. Mm. Uh, that, that one is, is very heavy and it's really dark because it's a you know song cycle about a serial killer who calls right. himself Spider. <laughs> Ever <laughs> see that movie called Suck? No. It's, a van- it's a rock and roll vampire movie. Uh, <laughs> It's. I think it's great fun. I think it's uh, something that really people who love cult movies, people who love hard rock, you know, like rock and roll, tons of great cameos in it. Alice Cooper plays the Prince of Darkness. <laughs> His daughter is in it. She's a bartender. Moby's in it. Alex Leifson is in it. Rollins is in it. Iggy Pop is in it. So there's a bunch of cameos, but it's basically about this group that calls themselves, they're, they're called the Losers, and they're trying to break it into the business. And then their hot bass player, which is, you know, hot chick bass player, basically is turned into a vampire. And all of a sudden, like, people start paying attention to this band because of their hot vampire bass player. (laughs) (laughs) And then one by one, each of the other members becomes, you know, becomes a vampire. And it's just this whole cautionary tale about wanting to fulfill your rock and roll dream so bad and what you're willing to do to to achieve that. And it's one of the few instances where something, a movie like that, has original musical numbers that not being a musical because it's about you know rock and roll bands but it has original songs and the songs are actually pretty decent but it's just i think it's a fun movie it's a fun little romp it's not even that long it's like hour and 25 minutes probably but definitely worth a look see if you can find it i think you can rent it on amazon probably i don't know what it's like over there like what kind of restrictions versus what we have i'll have to see if i can find that that sounds that's that sounds enjoyable i would like to encourage all of my listeners if you have not done so already to of course listen to this record and uh, if you've made it this far please like share comment 
whatever it is that you are supposed to do to help more people find the show, for more people to listen. If you would like to co-host a show, you can check out my wish list at the website, lovethisrecord.com. Steve, as always, it's fun to uh, talk to you about stuff, and especially Alice Cooper, because that's stuff you and I have nerded out on many times before. So to make it official, I really appreciate it. So thanks for coming to the show, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Appreciate you having me back.